We are going to be in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Uh, next week, we'll dig more into the scriptures. Uh, this week, we've got our papers, and we've got a couple of papers. hope you got both of them when you came in. Um, we're going to spend the majority of our time today talking about 1st John, obviously because it is the longer of the three epistles, uh, and it has more content. Uh, second and third John, we're going to mention them, but we won't spend a whole lot of time in them. But our focus wants to be on first John. First John is a beloved letter uh, of the church for many, many years. And um, we find many emphasis for our Christian life in it. In fact, first John is probably a great letter, along with the gospel of John, Uh, for believers to begin with, to really ground them in several aspects of their faith. And we're going to be talking about some of those aspects of their faith today as we jump into 1 John. Uh, But 1 John, uh, we see the content here. Um, Of course, it is an epistle. What you'll notice about 1 John is that it lacks your traditional introduction. It lacks your traditional greeting. It lacks your traditional... uh, you know, say my hellos to people that are there, the people that are with me, send hellos to you. Um, you know, it lacks a lot of those things that we would look at and typify as a traditional letter uh, as we've looked at the New Testament epistles. Uh, the interesting thing about this is that Evie, the author of the of 1 John doesn't even identify himself. Uh, he jumps right into uh, his theological thoughts and the purpose for him writing as he goes into 1 John. So, uh, but yet 2 John and 3 John, uh, if you notice you'll read through them, they don't give a name either. They is referred to as the elder. The elder has written 1 John, I mean 3 John and 2 John. Uh, but however, traditionally we have looked at 1 John, 2 John and 3 John is obviously written by uh, John himself. And it was written to assure, First John was written to assure uh, the believers on some of the specifics of their faith. And it offers assurance to them in giving them the surety of their faith. Uh, he's encouraging their loyalty to Christian faith and practice in response to some antichrists who have left the community. As we look at First John, the first thing that we'll, we see in striking fashion is how John begins his epistle. And it's very similar to the way that the gospel of John begins that gospel. So we look at the writer here of 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John describing himself as the elder, uh, connecting it to the gospel of John, connecting it to the gospel of John because of a similar writing style. Uh, a lot of new converts, they're told to go and read the Gospel of John because it's written very easily. It's, it's easy to read. It's written for a broad audience. And First John is as well. It's written in uh, the vocabulary is a simple vocabulary. Uh, he repeats the same words over and over again, as we'll see before we uh, close today. Uh, the themes are very similar between First John and the Gospel of John. Uh, the similar descriptions of Jesus. John is the only New Testament writer that refers to Jesus as the Word of God. Um, and he begins uh, here speaking about uh, Christ, and he begins obviously in first, I mean, the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was 
God. And uh, he begins here in 1 John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, uh, speaking of Jesus. And of course, when you go to the book of Revelation, as we will be the next book that we look at, John sees Jesus riding a white horse, uh, and his name written on him was the Word of God. So John, seeing this vision of Jesus being the Word, refers to Jesus in his epistles and in the gospel. He refers to Jesus as the Word of God. So a lot of those things connect all of these letters uh, that were written by John together. As far as when First John was written, uh, we really don't know. Uh, There are speculations from either the mid to late 60s uh, or the late 80s to early 90s, even as far out as there. So we really don't know and not for sure when uh, the epistles of John were written. But to who was it written to? Well, the epistles of John was, or 1 John was written to a Christian community, probably a network of house churches in the time, uh, and they were well known to the author. Uh, he refers to them as dear children. He refers to them as dear, dear friends. When he mentions uh, the people defecting from the church, it says they departed from us. Um, traditionally, the church that he's writing to or the Christians that he's writing to uh, is thought to be located in or around Ephesus. The occasion, why was this letter written? The occasion, it was written by some because of some false prophets who are spreading heresy concerning the person of Jesus Christ. And some in the fellowship have already embraced these errors and defected from the church. John writes to ground the believers in what they know to be the truth of their salvation and to follow the teaching that they have received from the beginning and that the anointing they have received. So those are two aspects in which John here writes to come against this teaching and the ideas about the person of Jesus from these false prophets. He takes them back to what you have heard and known from the beginning, from the start of their faith, and also from the anointing from the Holy Spirit that they have. And so by this teaching that they've received from the apostles, from the anointing that they have from the Holy Spirit, they are able to live in truth, they are able to live in righteousness, and they are able to live in love. And that is a major theme in this epistle of 1 John, is the theme of love. As we said, the primary occasion for writing this was these false teachers. And how many times, again, have we seen that theme over and over again in these epistles? Uh, and we've even, we said last week when we looked at Jude and Second Peter uh, that almost every letter in the New Testament is either dealing with uh, some false teaching that has come into the church, either from the outside in like the Judaizers or from the inside out like we see in First and Second Timothy, or it has to deal with the suffering and the persecution uh, that is happening to the believers, as we have seen in, in James and as well as other books as well, Hebrews and some of the books where the writer is encouraging endurance in their faith. But obviously, it's these false teachers that we find here that are causing the most trouble, and especially when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. 
being grounded in who Jesus is as far as incarnate deity, incarnate in flesh, coming to this earth, God becoming human, being fully God, fully man, being the Son of God, being the Christ, the anointed one, all these things are very essential to the Christian faith. Um, You know, we often say there are essentials and non-essentials in the Christian faith. Um, You know, when we look at the book of Revelation in a couple of weeks, um, and we talk about prophecy, I'm going to show you several different views of how the book of Revelation has been viewed over uh, the last 2,000 years, uh, because prophecy in and of itself is really one of the non-essentials. You know, how's Jesus coming back? What's it going to look like? You know, all of these things that there's a lot of disagreement upon. Uh, And those things, brothers can differ and and sisters can differ in Christ, hold different opinions, and it's not an eternal matter. It's not a matter of our salvation. However, when you talk about Jesus Christ and Him being made flesh, Him coming in the flesh, Him suffering in the flesh, Him dying in the flesh, Him being the Son of God, those things are very essential when we understand who Jesus is, because He is who our faith is really grounded upon, you know, the resurrection. All of these things are, are very essentials when it talks about Jesus Christ. So, that is something to talk about. So, we'll talk about that for a moment under the error of the false prophets. Well, what were they teaching and what was so bad? Well, the teaching of these false teachers, false prophets, however you want to define them, antichrist, uh, were primarily denied they primarily denied three essential facts about Jesus. First of all, they denied that Jesus was the Son of God, denying the relationship between the Father and the Son. Um, uh, let me, I'll just read a couple of scriptures. In chapter 2, verse uh, 22, it says, This is uh, one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. That's a big statement. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Chapter 2, verse 23. Then he says, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So we see this relationship between Father and Son. So to deny the Son of God, to deny that Jesus is the Son of God, is also to deny the Father. Then also to deny that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus was the anointed one. Uh, Verse 22, going back up to verse 22 of chapter 2, who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. And he says, this is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. So it's interesting that the only, and this is just a little tidbit, but the only book that has the word Antichrist in it is a non-prophetic book of 1 John. You won't find the word Antichrist in Daniel. You won't find the Antichrist. You won't find the name the Antichrist in Revelation. You won't find the name the Antichrist in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, You'll find other names that people attribute under this Antichrist. But the only place you will find the name Antichrist is right here in 1 John. And it has nothing to do with an end-time figure or a world ruler or a leader or anybody like that. The Antichrist and Antichrist 
are people who have the spirit of Antichrist who deny that Jesus is the Christ, and they deny the Father and the Son. So again, he says, who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. So those first two things, that Jesus is the Son of God and denies the relationship between Father and Son. Secondly, that Jesus was the Christ, was the anointed one. And really, there's a play on words there because Antichrist, the word Christ means anointed. It can mean the anointing. It can mean the anointed one. Um, So if you have Christ, the anointed one, then you have the Antichrist, which means against the anointed one, who deny the anointed one. And so John also goes on to say that the believers, you have an anointing. You have a, a Christos on you from the Holy Spirit. So he's comparing the Christians to the Antichrist. The Christians follow Christ. The Antichrist deny Christ. So he kind of sets up these words here and using these words Antichrist as a play against Christ and the Christians, which the root of Christ and Christians is anointed. So, and the third aspect is that they deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. They deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. Over in chapter 4 and verse number 2, 1 John 4, 2 says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Again, this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So there we see, again, denying that Jesus had come in the flesh. So those are our three errors that these false teachers were bringing to the Christians in order to lead them astray. And unfortunately, there were many that were already following uh, the words of these false teachers and the influence of these false teachers. Uh, For they had left the assembly, and he mentioned that they had gone out from us because they were not of us. So we find there that this influence over uh, the Christians had already been taking place. Um, The Antichrist, going back to our paper, the Antichrist have denied that Jesus had come in the flesh. Their belief was that a truly divine being could neither become genuinely human nor suffer in a physical body. Uh, This might have emerged from a view that denied the possibility of either incarnation or deification, combined with a desire to safeguard Jesus' divine nature by rescuing him from crucifixion so that he only appeared to suffer. And one of the words, uh, the words for this is docetism, and it's a form of Gnosticism. Those isms are big words. Gnosticism was the, the idea that you could, that a person could have supreme knowledge. Gnosis comes from the word knowledge, or we get knowledge from the word gnosis. That someone could have a supreme knowledge, uh, and they also rejected uh, the impurity of the material world. They highly emphasized the spiritual nature 
and totally de-emphasize the material world and the fleshly nature. So, Jesus as God could not coexist with human suffering in the same body. Um, so, the belief is of docetism is that Jesus only seemed or appeared to be genuinely human, that He only appeared that way to us, but He really wasn't. Uh, in reality, He was, you know, a spiritual being projecting an outward appearance. And, of course, there's a lot of problems with that because, you know, it denies the absolute incarnation that God became man, that Jesus put on flesh and was birthed a birth just like all of us and lived a fleshly experience just like us and died a physical death uh, just like us. Uh, and, and there was even beliefs that Jesus was switched at the cross and it wasn't really Jesus that died because, you know, God and dying in flesh just could not coexist together. So how does John address these issues? John addresses these issues by first appealing to the authority of his first-hand experience with Jesus. And that's, how, that's why he begins the letter like he does. Back in 1 John 1, 1, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, and he's speaking of those that were there with Jesus, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. He says, we saw him with our eyes, we touched him, we know that Jesus had come in the flesh, that Jesus was in a physical body. So the first thing he does is appeal to firsthand experience with Jesus by their own testimony. The next thing he does is he urges the believer's loyalty to that which had been taught from the beginning. You know, to not let this new teaching and new ideas about Jesus lead people away from the truth of what they had heard about Jesus from the beginning. And then he emphasizes the certainty of the believer's knowledge. And again, this is kind of a contrast because you had the Gnostics who believed they had the, the special form of knowledge, but instead of this special form of knowledge or the special revelation that they have, we have the believers who are being grounded in their certain knowledge of the truth, which brings us to one of the major emphasis of the letter, and that was to ground the believers in what they know. Um, what I want us to do, I want you to take on not the first John paper, but the other paper, the second John, on the back of that, there are key phrases or the key phrase to jump first John. Everybody say that key phrase to first John. It's got a lot of scriptures on it. So the major phrase in 1 John is the phrase, we know. So John is writing so that the believers would have complete assurance and complete knowledge in the truth. So look at all of these verses in 1 John, and there could be more. This is the ones I've come through and got, um, of what they should know. Let's just run through a few of them. We won't run through all of them. Again, this is to give them assurance. Chapter 2, verse 3, and hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. Chapter 2, verse 5, but whosoever keeps this word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby we know that we are in him. Uh, chapter 2, verse 18, little children, it is the last time. 
Um, that's going back to the word, what we mentioned last week, that you know, these writers believed something was very imminent. John said it was the last time. And as you have heard, the Antichrist shall come. Even now there are many Antichrists. Thereby we know that it is the last time. 2.29, if you know that he is righteous, then you know that everyone that does righteous is born of God. Uh, so, I mean, it goes on and on. We could read each one, uh, but we don't want to be too, you know, redundant here. But again, that you should know, that you would know, that we would know, that we would know, that we would know. So he's grounding them in the knowledge of the truth of what they had heard from the beginning, that they can have assurance that they are the children of God, that Jesus is who he said that he was. And this plays over against uh, the Antichrist who have this gnosis of special knowledge. So he's saying, don't leave the knowledge that you have of Christ uh, to follow this other kind of knowledge, which will lead you out of the truth and basically back out into the world. So that's how John addresses these problems of this error of the false teachers. Um, as we look at some of the emphasis on our paper near the bottom of our paper for 1 John, if we go back to our paper on 1 John, some of the major emphasis is that Jesus who came in the flesh is the Son of God, that Jesus showed God's love for us through his incarnation and crucifixion, that true believers love one another as God loved them in Christ, that God's children do not habitually sin, that believers can have full confidence in the God who loves them, and that by trusting in Christ, we now have eternal life. So again, these are some of our major emphasis and themes. So as you read through the book of 1 John, you will see these themes over and over again, oftentimes repeated. Again, it's, it's hard to have a clear outline of, in this section he talks about this, in this section of this, and in this section he talks about this, because these themes come back over and over again, kind of what we saw with uh, James in the book of James. Uh, so he'll talk about love and the false teachers and doing righteousness all in one chapter, and then in the next he'll do the same, and in the next he'll do the same. But as you're reading, you will see these themes come back up over and over and over again, um, all with an emphasis on Christ and all with an emphasis on truth and leading us to the eternal life that we have in Jesus Christ. And these, again, are themes that we see in John's gospel. Uh, John writes, now write these things that, that you would uh, know the Son, and by knowing the Son that you would have life in Him. So the theme of life is a theme in 1 John and also in the Gospel of John. The theme of eternal life is in 1 John and the Gospel of John. The theme of the Word of God, the theme of love uh, is the same. John, describes, or John is described as the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, uh, and he emphasizes that aspect of God. So a lot of the emphasis here we see in John's other writings as well, but just look for these emphasis uh, on Jesus and who he was, on God's love, on the believers should love one another, um, the children of God who are made righteous because of the one who is righteous uh, should live righteously. That's the nature, that's the new nature of a believer. Uh, and therefore, we don't live in continual habitual sin because we are now made in the image of the one who is ultimately righteous. And then our full confidence, everything that we can know, 
that we can have assurance of in our faith. As John talks about the Christian life, it's described in many different ways throughout this letter. Uh, He talks several times about being born of God. That's one way he describes the Christian life. In knowing God, in walking in the light is a way he describes the Christian life. He contrasts walking in darkness to walking in the light. And knowing God, being born of God, and walking in the light also has to do with having fellowship with God and having fellowship with other believers. You know, fellowship with God and other believers is part of the Christian life. And then several times he mentions the term abiding in Him, abiding in Christ. Uh, Of course, John talks about abiding in Christ in his gospel as well, where he records Jesus talking about how we can abide in him and the vine and the branches, you know, connected together. And so we see these themes continual in 1 John and in the gospel of John. Uh, he talks about the anointing or the Christ in you. So he part, puts that as part of the Christian life of, of Christ in us. Uh, he speaks of the Christian life in terms of having the anointing of the Holy Spirit, that we have the anointing of the Spirit, that we have the Spirit, and therefore we know that we abide in Him. And He leads us in truth. The anointing of the Spirit leads us in truth. Uh, Then the Christian life is about doing righteousness just as He is righteous. So righteousness is a characteristic of the Christian life. And here's how I like to put it. And it's not so much, you know, having a list of righteous do's and don'ts to follow. It's the righteousness that flows out of a righteous nature. As we mentioned last week when we talked about 2 Peter, Peter declared that we are partakers of the divine nature. And we've been given everything that pertains to life and godliness. And we have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of us. And if the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of us, If Christ is our righteousness that lives on the inside of us, if we have a new nature and we're renewing our minds, then we will live righteously. And our righteous life should literally be nothing more than an outflow of the Holy Spirit in us. You know, if I have to every day try and try and try and try and try and try and try to be righteous, you know, I might be trying to live out of the wrong source. Of course we're going to mess up. Of course we're going to fall because we're still in this flesh. We're still dealing with this flesh. But also if we're living in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, having our minds renewed by the Word of God, having fellowship with God, walking in the light, then the righteous life of God should flow out of us like a river. That is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. That's what's produced out of our life. So the Christian... Uh, you know, we can put it this way, that the Christians should bear the righteousness of God in their lives just as an apple tree bears apples or an orange tree bears oranges. You plant it, you water it, you expose it to light, it grows, and an apple tree produces apples. Grapevines produce grapes. Orange trees produce oranges. Um, And that's, that's the picture of the Christian life. It's a picture of growth. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a picture of bearing fruit. So he's saying if we walk in the light, if we're born of God, if we know God, 
then this is what's going to come out of our lives. We're going to do righteous. We're going to love. We're not going to hate our brothers. Uh, we're, we're going to walk in the truth. We're going to love truth. We're going to not love the world or the things that are in the world. So all of these things come from a life of people who are born of God, know God, walk in the light, have fellowship with God or abiding in God, that know we have the Holy Spirit abiding in us. All of these are things that are, should be produced in our lives because of our relationship. And that's all part of having eternal life. And that's the essence of what he's trying to secure these believers in, in Christ, who he was, because who Christ is determines who we are. Who Christ is determines who we are. He is life. This is life. Whoever has the Son has life. If Jesus isn't the Son, then we don't have life that comes from the Son. If Jesus isn't the Christ, the anointed one, then we don't have the anointing. If, if Jesus didn't come in the, in the flesh, then we have no hope for us today because he is our example. So all of these, if, if Christ isn't righteous, then we're not righteous because our righteousness is solely based on who Christ is. So you see how these two walk hand in hand. Who Christ is has a direct result on who we are in Him because we find our life in Him. And um, that is so important to this uh, letter of 1 John. Uh, let's turn to the back of our 1 John page here. John also reveals, for lack of a better term, the tests of a true Christian life. What defines a true Christian life? Well, first of all, our beliefs about Christ, uh, the righteousness of the believer, which is based on Christ, which produces a righteous life of the believer, the love for one another. That's the test of a true Christian life, the love for one another. And then the anointed life that we have in the Spirit, the anointing that we have for Him. So those aspects of our Christian life he says, our test by where, by where we can know, that we can know, we can have confidence and assurance. Our right beliefs about Christ, our righteousness that's coming from our righteous life in Him, our love for one another, and the presence of the Holy Spirit on the inside of us. Uh, the overview of 1 John, uh, other than the false teachers, and we've covered basically the overview, but the, uh, other than the false teachers, the primary concerns are the incarnation of Christ the love for the brothers and sisters, especially those in need, the relationship between sin and being God's children, righteousness. Uh, the first two of these are the more urgent and expressed together in 323. This is his command to believe in the name of, the, of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another. That's another important thing to mention, and I, it's tacked on here. I wanted to put it out by itself. But it talks about several times about following his commandments, following his commandments. And before we just jump into that, we need to ask, what are his commandments that he's talking about? The commandments that John is talking about is these commandments here that he mentions in 323. This is his command. He tells us what his command is. This is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, 
and to love one another. That's the two commands of the Christian life. There's not even 10, there's not 600, there's not even 10. There's two that John mentions here. Believe on the name of Christ, enter in the faith in Him, receive Him as your Savior, and love one another. And everything else flows from those two things. Everything else in our Christian life should flow from those two things. Our belief in our relationship with Jesus and our love for one another. And that would help us get a mighty long way down the road if we would do those things. Um, The incarnation, uh, Christ becoming flesh, taught as relating to the saving significance of Christ's death, the ultimate expression of God's love for us is tied directly to the belief that Christ came in the flesh. The concern about believers loving one another is tied to God's love for us. Because God is love and God has loved us, we, in turn, love one another. Uh, The concern about sin is tied to the theme, who are the children of God? Um, John writes in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children, I write unto you that you do not sin. He says, But if anyone sins... We have an advocate with the Father, the righteous one, Jesus Christ. Um, And he's the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. So, I mean, the goal of the Christian life is not to sin, but our appeal when we do sin is the advocate that we have for us, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And because he is righteous and we are in him and we're walking in righteousness, and we will live righteously. And living righteously is not continuing to live in habitual rebellious sin against God. Uh, namely here, um, the correct beliefs about God, uh, hating one another, uh, these type of issues that he takes up here. That's the focus that he has in view. Um, the specific advice for reading John, um, again, what he says about the false prophets, that's a driving uh, theme in the book. Uh, they've recently left the community. Um, these prophets uh, apparently consider their teaching to come from the Spirit, which is why John urges the believer's own anointing of the Holy Spirit is sufficient for them. Uh, indeed, he writes here, indeed, in a marvelous wordplay of the language of anointing, uh, charisma, uh, he calls the false prophets anti. Christ. So again, that's that comparison that we talked about earlier. And then I love the way that, um, that uh, Fee ends up his portion here um, on our papers. He takes these words, and here's what I mean by John repeats words. Um, you have the words remain, continue, and abide 24 times, the truth nine times, believe nine times, confess five times, uh, the Father 14 times. Uh, the commandment 14 times, brothers and sisters 15 times. Um, so you have all of these uh, words that are mentioned over and over and over again. And he puts them in kind of a summary of First John. So we're going to end by, in First John by reading uh, this summary that he writes of using all these words over and over again. So the whole story of First John is this, to remain, continue, and abide in the truth means to believe in or confess the Son, to whom the Father and Spirit bear witness. It means further to be born of God, so as to walk in the light, to hear and to know God, 
to keep the commandment to love the brothers and sisters, and thus to have life, which is from the beginning, and finally to overcome the world. All of this is in contrast to the lie, deceit, denying Christ, having a false spirit, thus being antichrist, walking in darkness, hating one's brothers and sisters, but loving the world, thus being in sin, which leads to death. So he just ties all of these words and themes together in this one uh, summary. So as you read First John throughout this week, just uh, look for these themes, look for, these, uh, look for the warnings against these false teachers and what they're teaching, uh, look for the, the emphasis on the Christian life and all the different pictures that it puts there. And um, I think it'll make this book really come alive and really give us deeper meaning. Let me just for two minutes just touch on 2 John and 3 John um, on our second paper. This is orienting data. First, second John and 3 John is there. Um, second John, he identifies himself as the elder who is writing, and he warns against false teachers who deny the incarnation of Christ. You know, pretty much so to say, once false teachers leave one church, they'll go down the road and try to go to another fellowship of believers. Um, the recipient of this letter is the lady chosen by God, the lady chosen by God, um, either a single local congregation or a woman who hosts uh, a house church. Her children are the members of the believing community. Uh, the occasion is John is concerned that after the defection of the false prophets from his community, they might spread their teaching in another community of faith. So we find here that he's, this is a letter of a brief letter of warning. Uh, where he talks about many deceivers have gone out into the world. Such a one as Antichrist. Watch yourselves. Um, so 2 John is a letter of warning to a church against the influence of these false teachers that are coming to them. In 3 John, I mean, that's basically all that it is. I mean, it's like, what, 13 verses. Um, 3 John is again identified by the elder and is written to a man named Gaius, whom he loves in the truth. Uh, Gaius here is commended for showing hospitality to John's messengers. Then there's another guy in 3 John, uh, Diotrephus. And Diotrephus is not very welcoming. Uh, Diotrephus is under a little bit of a power trip when it comes to the church. Uh, so, the occasion here is John received a good report about Gaius and wrote to congratulate him for his faithful hospitality and to warn about Diotrephus, an ambitious man trying to control the church and to commend Demetrius, who might have been a local member of the church or else the bearer of the letter. So you have Gaius who is written to, uh, you have uh, Diotrephus who you're not supposed to be like, and then you have uh, Demetrius who received a good testimony uh, and should be welcome. So again, 15 very short verses there. Uh, you can take time to read that. Won't spend a lesson. Yeah, not quite as theological heavy as uh, 1 John was. So I think you'll be blessed by 1 John by putting all this together and seeing uh, you know, the big picture of all of that. And next week we will take our chapter-by-chapter -chapter journey through 1 John in summary of that.